Welcome to the McGill Journal of Law and Health podcast and to part of our mini-series focused on the deferral of men who have sex with men, or MSM, from blood donation in Canada. My name is Sydney Blackrochin, and joining me today is Kylie Wileyman, with whom I will be discussing constitutional objections to the MSM deferral. Ms. Wileyman received her Juris Doctor from the University of Saskatchewan and is now a law clerk at the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench. Prior to attending law school, Ms. Wileyman completed a Master of Science in Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. Ms. Wileyman is currently a research assistant in a project at the University of Waterloo that examines exemptions in human tissue legislation in Canada, including blood and blood products. All views expressed by Ms. Wileyman in this episode are entirely her own and do not reflect those of her employers. Thank you so much for coming to our podcast. We're very excited to have you on uh, for this episode. So my first question for you is kind of how the MSM deferral policy has evolved over the years in Canada. Right. So the policy actually hasn't changed a whole lot over time, besides to change the time component of the deferral policy. So in the very beginning, in like 1992 or 1994, I can't remember the exact date, um, the Canadian Blood Services um, created a lifetime ban. So at that time, it was if you were a man who has sex with another man since 1977, you were banned from donating blood. Then, you know, time passes. And then in 2013, it became if you have had sex in the last five years, you know, or a man who had sex with a man in the last five years, then it was a a deferral. So basically, though, the same thing as a ban. Then in 2016, it became 12 months. And then, of course, in 2019, it was reduced to three months. So now that deferral may have made a difference for some folks, but for a sexually active queer man, it virtually made no difference. Um, If you are a sexually active man who has sex with men, then you are basically banned from donating blood. So really that policy, besides that time component, has not changed. So you are opposed to the exclusion of MSM from giving blood. What are your main objections to the policy? So my main objection to the policy is that it carries discriminatory connotations and is just completely unnecessary for the safety of the blood supply. Um, My legal argument, of course, will be that it falls afoul of the charter. But I want to make it clear that even if the charter violations we discussed today are insufficient for those legally minded folks out there to say that it should be changed, there are dozens of non-legal arguments to be made which support changing the policy. And as lawyers, we often get wrapped up in the litigation side of things, but there's something to be said for advocating for better policies and laws to be made well in the first place. So yeah, so basically the end goal here is just to get that policy changed regardless of what means that takes. So you believe that the MSM deferral could be challenged in court using the charter. So I'd love to ask you kind of in what ways, like what this could look like. Right. So I do believe it could be successfully challenged, but it would certainly be an uphill battle. 
The main reason why is that it has already been challenged in the Ontario Superior Court and was actually rejected. So that case was decided over a decade ago now and was called Canadian Blood Services and Freeman. So the case of Freeman started because in 2002, Mr. Kyle Freeman, a gay man, sent an anonymous letter to Canadian Blood Services revealing that he had donated blood on numerous occasions between 1990 and 2002. Now recall at that time, the policy was a lifetime deferral, sorry, lifetime ban for any man who had sex with a man ever. Now, upon receiving that letter, it was actually the Canadian Blood Services that decides to sue Mr. Freeman for making false claims and putting the donor supply at risk because he identified as a gay man. Mr. Freeman, in response, defends himself by claiming that the ban on blood donations violates his charter rights. The result, as you may have guessed, did not land in Mr. Freeman's favor. So Justice Catherine Aiken ruled that not only did the charter not apply to the Canadian Blood Services, but even if it did, there was no charter claim because the distinction was not made on the grounds of sexual orientation, but rather on the grounds of health and safety considerations. Of course, I don't agree with the decision, but the nice part about the decision is that it lays out the hurdles you would be up against if you were to make a charter claim. Interesting. A question I have about this case, was it appealed? No, it wasn't appealed, actually. So after that case, nothing sort of happened, and we don't really see anything occur after that. And I think it is because that case, a very lengthy decision, a very well-written decision, and it based on what's there and the, the, the allegations made against Mr. Freeman and his arguments, it actually doesn't appear to leave much room for an appeal. But if you look closely at the major arguments made about the violation for Section 15 Equality Guarantee, which is what Mr. Freeman alleged, it actually, if you could establish both that the Charter does apply to the Canadian Blood Services, and you can establish that blood donation itself is a right that every Canadian should have, there actually is a way to make that argument. What do you think that that argument could look like today? Right. So let's go back a little bit here then and, and just talk about what Mr. Freeman even argued in the first place and how that would look different today. So the major argument made by Mr. Freeman was that the policy was a violation of his Section 15 Equality Guarantee under the Charter. So the Canadian Blood Services argues that the category of men who have sex with men does not actually equate to gay and bisexual men. In other words, categorizing a man on the basis of whether he has had sex with another man is different than categorizing him on the basis of his sexual orientation. The justice in that case actually rejects this argument and states that men who have sex with men is a clear proxy for sexual orientation and is often used interchangeably with gay and bisexual men. So I agree with that completely and I don't think that that would change up to this date. But what Justice Aiken does say after listening to extensive testimony on the history and the policy, she comes to the conclusion that it was not actually a sexual behavior question as alleged by CBS. What actually prevented the claim from being successful was twofold. First, the CBS was not held to be a government agency. And second, donating blood was held not to be a right for every individual. So those two conclusions are where we find trouble, but those two conclusions are what I think we could make a successful argument on today. 
So I do think there's a way to argue that CBS is a government agency. And I actually think it's critical that that argument be made. For listeners who may not have legal education, the charter only applies to governments and the matters within the authority of those governments. So in order to establish that the charter applies to the Canadian Blood Services, it must be established that either the entity is governmental in nature, in that the government exercises substantial control over it, or the activity in question is governmental in nature. So in Freeman, Justice Aiken holds that CBS is not a government entity because one, it is private corporation, two, the government has not delegated authority to it, three, the government has not assigned a particular function to perform, and four, it is to operate at a lo- arm's length from all governments. So of those four points, I would target number two and three, and I would argue that the government has delegated duties to the Canadian Blood Services Organization and has specifically assigned control of Canada's blood system to CBS. I think if you find that both those points are true, then you can classify the activities and Canada's blood system as a whole should be governed by the charter. I think that is a part of the case that I find exceptionally interesting that CBS is not a government agency. I think it, it kind of does shift my views on, on how I think we classify government agencies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason that it makes you question how we classify government agencies is because in your mind, and I think in most of the public's mind, when we think of Canadian blood services, we're actually thinking of a governmental body. I think if you told people that Canadian blood services was not actually run by the government, they would be shocked. And quite honestly, when I started looking into how this was developed is where I go, you know, it's actually surprising that it wasn't classified as a government agency. So that's sort of what, where I want to take us to next is, is how Canadian blood services came into existence so that we can better understand how they're run and actually why it's important that the charter should apply to them. So if we look at how they came into existence, we have to go back to the Creever Commission. So I'm sure you well know at this point that the Creever Commission arose out of the blood taint scandal that occurred in the late 70s and 80s and was a public inquiry on the blood system at the time. So Justice Creever was appointed commissioner of that inquiry and he heard the testimonial of hundreds of witnesses and reviewed thousands of documents, then provides recommendations to the government. Out of those recommendations, we get the Canadian Blood Services. So let's look at those recommendations. One key finding from that inquiry was that due to the individual provincial industrial policies, quarter decisions were made when the epidemic, the HIV epidemic, hit that jeopardized the national blood supply system as a whole. So Justice Creever recommended that the new blood operator be operationally independent to ensure that the system could be run efficiently at a national level. Autonomy was also needed to enable local branches to act more quickly in response to public health concerns. But That need for operational independence did not extend to independence from the government. And I think that's a crucial point here. The operator at the time of the blood tank crisis was actually Red Cross. And Justice Creever found that the Red Cross's independence from government at the time was problematic because Red Cross did not consider itself bound by the government's directives. So Justice Creever actually draws the conclusion that the reason for relieving Red Cross of its role was that the operator had to be an instrument of governmental policy and not independent of it. And I think that statement is absolutely key here. 
the new operator was to be an instrument of governmental policy, not independent of it. And the Canadian Blood Service, being the new operator, was created in accordance with those recommendations. So the CBS, by all accounts, is an instrument of government policy. Yes, it is operationally independent. But if you take a look at the federal government's blood regulations, it is the federal government who authorizes the establishment of blood donor criteria. So that blood deferral policy can be rejected or approved by the federal government. That is wholly within their power. So from my standpoint, and I think from the general public standpoint, I do not think it would be appropriate if the federal government or any government could establish a corporation, delegate it duties, and then escape any accountability that goes along with those activities. So really that, to me, would be the crux of my argument and any argument in arguing that the charter should apply in this circumstance. I guess my question is, following your explanation, is about how in the Freeman decision, how Justice Aiken kind of squared that circle of looking at the history and the Kruger Commission and, you know, all the surrounding uh, federal legislation. Like, was this something that was factored into the decision and kind of what were the reasoning behind? Yeah, honestly, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I don't know that I quite know the answer to it. From my read of the decision, I'm not quite clear on what all was in front of Justice Aiken and if those points were drawn to her attention. So I can't say what was argued. What I do know was argued from the Canadian Blood Services is that they operate at an arm's length. And that's true. They operate at an arm's length and they have to. That's, that's part of their mandate, right? It's what makes them efficient. It's what makes them able to do their job. But really, you know, that's problematic for a whole host of reasons, not just for this case. We just can't have agencies like that developed and then say, well, just because they operated at arm's length, therefore they can't be having government activities. Yeah, in the end, the arguments that were put before Justice Aiken at that time, obviously, you know, she decided that CBS wasn't a government agency. And, and I don't know if it's just the way the government, the way the argument was framed, but certainly the argument of the Creever Report and how CBS was developed wasn't in front of her at that point. And so I just want to ask you kind of about the other part of the decision that you mentioned earlier, which is that donating blood is not a right or it's not wasn't held to be a right for every individual mm -hmm. do you think that this is something that also could be tackled um if this case was readdressed in in today's landscape right yeah absolutely i think that you can really reframe that argument quite easily to say that uh, you know the way that we perceive blood donations should be considered a right of every individual. And that's not a right to donate and have your blood accepted. It's a right to be able to go to a blood donation clinic and be assessed using individual criteria that doesn't target a personal characteristic of yourself, right? Like we want just equal opportunity to even be able to donate blood, I think is, is really the goal there. You know, and I, and I think if we look at the national blood system as it's held up by CBS and, and the government, it's held up as this social institution. And they use this connection to nationalism to prom promote blood donation as this fundamental aspect of, of being a citizen and being a good person. And we, you know, blood is a gift and you see all the commercials and you hear it all the time, right? So the MSM deferral policy limits access to that fundamental social institution. And it really lessens queer individuals membership in Canadian society. 
And in this way is that it creates an adverse distinction. So regardless of the jurisprudence you follow, that policy does create that adverse distinction based on sexual orientation. And from there, I mean, your section 15 argument would be quite straightforward, I believe, because, you know, it's, it's quite evident the historical discrimination of the queer community and, of course, the perpetuation of homophobia by that deferral policy. I mean, it's a topic clearly still in today's society that we talk about. So I think if you can make that persuasive argument that, you know, blood in itself is so pivotal to humanity and that donation is pivotal to humanity and you shouldn't be denied that for arbitrary reasons. I think you have a good argument. Do you think that like this is something that could be essentially saved under section one? Yeah, I think there there's some difficulty there because the science isn't always clear. And I think, you know, it's sort of, a boon that we're currently going through an epidemic because the language being tossed around during this epidemic is something that, you know, having a background of epidemiology, I'm quite used to the terms, but you get a better sense that science isn't always conclusive and it changes rapidly. And that is both goes against section one arguments because you're going to have you know, you'll have the CBS coming forward with a ton of scientific articles that say, it's a, too risky to promote. We just don't know enough. But let me tell you, there's a whole wealth of articles out there that say the exact opposite, that say there's a way to do this, that say it is better, you know, we don't need this deferral policy because there are better testing techniques out there. There are better policies and ways to get around this. So the problem with the Section 1 analysis and the way that the court interprets it, it isn't always, is there something better out there that could be used because they don't really care about that. It's, is this, is this policy so arbitrary and so broad that it should be removed? And so I think depending on the scientific literature that you look at, that may be a difficult argument to make, but I personally think that if you, if we can demonstrate that this is so arbitrary and that if it could be demonstrated through scientific knowledge and through the ability to show that it is so harmful now that it and it's unneeded, I think that we could overcome those section one arguments. But yeah, again, I think it just comes back to even if all of these arguments legally failed, there is there is another way. Is there a way that we could even look at this from like a section seven perspective? If there is I mean, this is like really extrapolating, but like if there is a blood shortage, we've had all these scientific advancements, like is that even a route that you think could be considered in the future or in the present? Or do you think that's like I going think, a little too far? No, I think it's a more, I think you're right. I think it's a more difficult route. There is, there are some people out there and this isn't under um, like a section seven argument maybe. But there are people out there who actually advocate for changes to be made to the blood ban because they actually think that our gen you know younger generation of people, um, you know, part of the reason they don't go donate blood is because of this deferral policy. So there's actually a lot of research out there that says that if you actually change this deferral policy, you would actually like promote blood donation amongst young people. So I think your, your, your line of thinking is certainly not erroneous in any way whatsoever. 
Um, but I think that actually falls in line more with policy considerations in general and a reason for changing this, this blood donation. So not so much a technical legal argument that could be made, um, but rather a policy argument that sure, certainly should be made. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I'd be interested to know kind of what the rates are of donation for each generation and thinking like to the younger generation, like, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. There's certainly like something to be said for, you know, they have to look better. I mean, the Canadian blood services generally to our generation doesn't look the greatest. It doesn't come out looking the greatest just because of these policies. And there's something to be said for our generation taking a stand against it because of that. But at the same time, I don't know how big of a difference that it has made, but who knows how big of a difference it could make. I mean, they haven't tried it because the policy still exists, right? So, I mean, that, that's part of it. So the CBS enacts many exclusion policies, some of which are aimed at heterosexual practices. What, in your opinion, makes the MSM deferral different from these other exclusion policies? Yeah, so as I already discussed, really MSM is just another proxy for gay and bisexual. And I think no matter how you argue that men who have sex with men is just targeting behavior, I don't think you can ever lose that connotation. Um, and, and I want to provide an example here of something that happened during COVID that I think demonstrates perfectly. So I'm here in Saskatchewan and we had um, early in the, the COVID uh, pandemic, we had a COVID outbreak amongst Hutterite colonies. And so Hutterite colonies have communal living standards. And so for actually for the first, you know, two or three announcements around this, they actually explicitly said there's been an outbreak in Hutterite colonies. And then all of a sudden there was this like pause by government and by the colonies. And we're like, wait a second, this isn't good. <laughs> we could get called for this. Like we are identifying a group of people and we are associating them with COVID. And so this could have ramifications for Hutterite individuals. And especially since they are very identifiable because they have different dress than others. And so, you know, if they showed up in a community, are they going to be discriminated against? Anyways, moving on, they decide instead of saying, um, a heterite colony outbreak that they're going to have a outbreak in a communal living setting. <laughs> so then they start using, oh, there's been another outbreak in a communal living setting. And you go, we all know what that means. We all know you're referring to the heterites now. So does that all of a sudden, now that you've changed it to communal living, that doesn't erase the fact that for the past how many weeks you've been specifically calling out Hutterite individuals. And so when I look at this deferral policy, the fact that you now say, oh, men who have sex with men is just targeting the behavior, it's not actually targeting gay or bisexual men or any queer man. I should be clear that men who have sex with men isn't specifically gay or bisexual or how they identify, I should say. But <laughs> that connotation that existed in the late or in the 80s, in the 90s and on to today associated with discrimination, just never, you can't get rid of it. 
So I think that's a really important thing for people to remember when they're looking at this is that, you know, sure, people will say that it's targeting behavior, you're targeting men who have sex with men, but really that connotation, that discriminatory connotation that existed historically, just it's not lost. Then moving on to the fact that it's just too broad. <laughs> so, you know, men who have sex with men captures men who are monogamous or practice safe sex, when really the true group you wish to capture is an individual who engaged in unprotected, anally receptive sex. That's the risk behavior you're trying to capture. So that blanket categorization of MSM as high risk disregards the actual risk that individual MSM donors present given their particular sexual behaviors. Is a gay man in a monogamous relationship with an HIV negative partner riskier than a straight man who has sex with strangers on a weekly basis? Is a bisexual man who diligently practices safe sex riskier than a straight college student who routinely forgets to use protection? You know? So I think there are so many questions there that come up. And then you start to ask, well, what behavior is it that we're targeting here? And it certainly isn't those men who just, I, the fact that you identify as a man who has sex with men is not what makes you at a higher risk for HIV. That's not what makes you at a higher risk. So it's those other behaviors that go along with that, that we want to target. And just as another example for, for listeners, so other targeted policies, for example, would be intravenous drug use. So a, an example I like to use is in Saskatchewan, 80% of HIV is actually found amongst the Indigenous communities in Saskatchewan here. And part of that is the association with HIV being transmitted by intravenous drug use. So it's not the fact that they are Indigenous. It's not the fact that they're a high-risk group here being that this 80% of our, our new incidences are Indigenous people. It is the fact that intravenous drug use is a problem in some of those communities. So it's the same thing with men who have sex with men. It is not the fact that they are men who have sex with men that's the issue. It is the fact of unprotected sexual behaviors. So that, to me, is the biggest difference. So in your opinion, is there an alternative or what would the alternative look like to an MSM deferral that would target these same risks? Right. So when you look at the deferral period and the reason it exists, you know, you start having conversations about latency period and then it goes, well, you know, can we really truly ask a question that will capture these risky behaviors? Personally, I think you can. But even if you forget all of that, even if you don't even think about the questions or the deferral period or anything like that, I think you have to take a, holos a holistic look at our health system and ask, how can we better target preventative HIV mechanisms so that this doesn't even become an issue in the first place? You know, if you look at the current testing, first of all, three months is way over what a lot of scientific literature say for testing now. So you'll get a lot of different numbers, but I've seen number, numbers for that latency period, so that late, latency period being the time when you can actually detect someone has HIV. So from the time of exposure, to the time when it's detectable. Some have said that if you use both nucleic acid testing and antibody testing for HIV, that that window is less than 10 days. Now, that window obviously is gonna depend on what kind of testing we have provided in Canada. And so that's a whole other issue. <laughs> if, we're, 
you know, so that that in itself, if we're providing appropriate testing methods, if we're providing testing methods that allow us to detect in a shorter time frame, then that three month window is completely unnecessary. So if I'm thinking in my head, okay, so we, we look at our testing. So if we look at our testing and we say we have testing that can detect within two weeks of exposure. Well, now your question becomes, have you engaged in unprotected anally receptive sex, or let's say one of the other risk behaviors, have you engaged in just generally unprotected sex with a new partner? Then the next question is, have you received an HIV test since you, you know, engaged in that behavior? And then you go, okay, well now I'm not only pro- like promoting HIV testing, but now we're reducing the risk. So, I mean, those are, you know, two things that can go hand in hand. And then, you know, on top of that, if you were to add, you know, general education and sex education about, you know, just sexual, sexually transmitted diseases, how it's transmitted, and what different types of testing techniques are out there, then you add, you know, the importance of birth control, generally speaking, and you have a whole wonderful set of public health promotional materials on top of a better policy that doesn't discriminate. So I think it's it's really important to realize that when you're looking at this policy, you have to look at it within the context of Canadian public health policy to begin with and testing procedures to begin with. And if you look at literature out there, you can see that one of the reasons that people don't regularly get HIV tested is because there's stigma around it. And there's also stigma around having HIV still. So there needs to be some serious education about HIV. You can live a long, healthy life with HIV. You can engage in sexual activity with HIV as long as you're on the proper medications. So I think there needs to be a lot more of that public education to destigmatize, a lot more testing, better testing if that's what's necessary. And then we look at this policy and we go, it's completely unnecessary. So I think, you know, if I look, is there an alternative? Absolutely. Is it, is it something that we should look at? Absolutely. It would benefit a lot of different areas. So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> it does. Thank you so much. So, kind of, so as you were speaking about public health and, and Canadian public health, I was thinking about how the pandemic that we're currently in, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has kind of brought public health to the forefront of like the nation's collective mind essentially like for a lot of people who kind of didn't have to think about it so often suddenly testing sites and and you know safety measures are are all we can think about you know and so I was wondering if if you think the COVID-19 crisis is going to impact or change the discourse around the MSM deferral that's a good question I I hope it does I think that just people's awareness of different public health measures and how things can be done certainly should promote just better conversations about it. The problem with the pandemic in general and everything that's happened and really in just the information age, Ryan, is that public health education still isn't that good. Even during this epidemic, it still hasn't been that great. And you have a lot of disinformation out there. And so I think that, you know, as with anything, even with changing this deferral policy, one of the things that comes up in the discourse around changing it is that, well, aren't you creating a greater risk for people who are already at risk? Because they're the ones, the vulnerable individuals are the ones receiving blood. 
So oftentimes what you have is this balance between the vulnerability of the people receiving blood and the people who are giving blood. And that's why there's that discourse between, is it your right to give blood when it's a vulnerable person receiving? And so you've seen that same discourse during COVID and how is it your right, for example, to not wear a mask, to flout public health safety, when a vulnerable individual, someone who's susceptible, elderly and other people have a risk of catching COVID and suffering severely from it. You know, that discourse hasn't gone well. <laughs> and I think, so I think that some people, it's, it's always going to be a question of how this is framed moving forward. And while the discourse is out there, I think more than anything, what COVID has demonstrated to me is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about science and a lot of distrust out there of what's happening. So while I hope it does change the discourse, generally speaking, I'm not sure that it will be the change. It will be enough to kind of push this forward faster. But I do think at least having the language out there and the discussions out there will actually be better just for people's general understanding. But I think it's also demonstrated how difficult it truly is to move a public health policy like this forward because of the amount of distrust out there of government agencies. So yeah, I think there's, there's some work, lots of work to be done yet. <laughs> yes, I have to say this, this uh, mistrust of, of science, it's been quite a uh, wake up call of kind of like how we, how we generally communicate with the general public mm -hmm. um, information that might not be so palatable. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of, part of the problem with the blood deferral policy is that people are so risk adverse when it comes to HIV. You know, even in comparison to COVID, you see how risk adverse people are now, but HIV um, in people's minds because of that connotation they have with it and sort of the misunderstanding of people's ability to live with it and just sort of that negative aspect of it. Um, there it's going to be an even harder battle because people already have in their minds the set idea of, of what HIV looks like and <laughs> who contracts HIV. And you have to undo all of that first before you can even move forward. And then you have to deal with risk or, you know, and, and you know, it's ridiculous to even talk about this, but you know, the risk of getting HIV from, a, you know, a blood transfusion is ridiculously low. But, you know, if you were to tell someone the risk of you getting COVID by walking out that door today is like one in a thousand, people would probably be like, ah, I'll take the chance. <laughs> you know, that's the point we're at. But, you know, if you tell someone the risk of, you know, a gay man donating, like donating blood and it, the blood system getting HIV and then and then transfusing someone else with that is like like a hundred times lower than that they'd be like oh really like you know like really so I so I think it's you know that's sort of the difficult part for me to wrap my head around it's like how how do you calculate people calculate their own personal risk but then how does public health calculate that risk for everyone else it's it's definitely been an interesting year <laughs> Yeah, it really has been. I'm interested to know kind of what you see the next maybe like five to 10 years looking like for the MSM deferral, you know, and I think this kind of brings in um, what you were saying about like public perception of 
so many different issues and, and kind of public health education and, and all these different things. Like, um, what, what do you think the future might look like for this issue specifically? I don't know how promising the research currently is out there because there's just not enough research. So I think, you know, because there's not enough countries that have switched the deferral policy and Canada generally isn't the first to leap and do these things, um, that that's problematic for us as, you know, someone who's promoting and advocating for this change is that a lot of other countries haven't changed it. But I think what, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be the first and I think we should. <laughs> but I think what needs to happen is a real discussion needs to happen about the seriousness that people take um, when looking at this policy and the impact that it has on people's lives. And I think real conversations also need to happen about HIV and the epidemics that we see within our own provinces that have nothing to do with MSM policy. And, and to remember that, you know, the blood deferral policy as it exists really did arise out of discrimination. And that that's something that I don't think a lot of public health officials think about a lot. They just look at it and they say, well, but that's a behavior, you know, and, and we need to stop looking at it like that and go, no, this is a discriminatory policy. And once that gets across to public health officials, I think things will move along quicker. And so I, I do think the government does take it seriously. And I do think Canadian Blood Services takes it seriously. And this, this is not me trying to paint either as an evil organization that's out to get us. It's just the, the fact that they're scientists and they're risk adverse. And unless it can be demonstrated that there's another method to reduce, to have that low risk, that they're not gonna budge on that policy. So if, you know, we can come forward with studies that show that, you know, changing the questions, changing public health education, doing all these other things keeps that risk low, then yeah, they'll change it no problem. Um, but the sad part is, is that they don't see that it's discriminatory. And I think that's really the biggest challenge right now is that connection with discrimination. So how do I see it going? Hopefully a lot more push um, for just research into better ways to manage um, the HIV crisis. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ms. Wileyman. I really appreciate it. <laughs>